Hey everyone, this is Craig. Thank you for listening. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you how much fun we've had interacting with everyone on Facebook and on our site, thelegendariumpodcast.com. We've produced a lot of content over the last couple of years, and we're glad that we've been able to do it completely free from day one. All we ask from you is that you help us spread the word. Like us on Facebook, leave a review in iTunes, and above all, share us with your friends. Again, thank you for listening, and welcome to The Legendarium. Today, Todd and I are in studio with author Celeste Cheney discussing her debut novel, In Absence of Fear, which you can and should get on Amazon for just eight bucks. We have a good long chat, and I hope you stick around for the whole thing, but here's the short of it. We loved it, and we think you'll love it too. Yes, welcome indeed to the Legendarium Podcast. With me today is my woolly sidekick, Todd. Uh, Ryan and Ken are excused because Ryan wouldn't be able to sit through a discussion that even approached politics, and Ken doesn't know how to read. So, uh, today we are... I think we all resemble those remarks. (laughs) Well, today we are discussing... We're doing things a little bit different. We're discussing a book, much like we often do. The difference here is that you, unless you are one of a select few, you have not yet read this book. But you should. Yes. And we have the author here with us. So we'll get there in just a minute. Just a minute. Um, first, Todd, I, I'm going to do some prepared remarks. Oh, oh. All right. Some science fiction explores what your life or the world looks like when the right technology comes along and makes our lives awesome. A popular recent example of this type of utopia would be Ready Player One, which we read recently. Good Uh, book. Despite its efforts to come off as gritty, it really just makes massive multiplayer games look like the savior this world is waiting for, right? Um, I'm still waiting for my haptic gloves to arrive. Yeah, we all are. (laughs) A more cynical, more pessimistic, and probably more realistic direction that sci-fi can go is to look at what can go wrong with the shiny new toys that humans cook up. This brings us to the novel at hand, In Absence of Fear by Celeste Cheney. Cheney? Hello, yes. Okay, yes, awesome. Set in about the year 2060, give or take, our hero, Maris, is the chief architect of a massive software program being utilized by the state to predict and head off crime before it happens. Think Minority Report, but replace the magical precogs with the all-too-real algorithms and supercomputers. Much more scary. Right. Everyone in Maris's world is implanted with a chip that tracks their movements, biometrics, habits, sleep patterns, you name it. Much like animals. This tech, along with Maris's program, have dramatically reduced crime in the previously rough cities, and it's going so well that the government has commissioned an even more intrusive program, which Maris is about to finish. Things go sideways, though, when the unthinkable happens, and his son is kidnapped, his wife leaves him, and he is pushed out of his job. Now, Maris must go on a quest to reclaim his family in a race against a terrifying government, a mysterious group of rebels, and the system he himself created. Now, why do I call this more realistic than a utopian vision of the future? Because ultimately, science fiction is about people, about human nature, and the technology we create is nothing more than a tool in the hands of imperfect people. The idea of implanted monitoring chips is not far-fetched in the slightest, but even less so is the sure knowledge that with such technology will come the ability and the desire for those in power to abuse it, almost certainly in the name of the greater good. Boy, are you cynical. 
I am. I am. I'm a terrible person. Anyway. Have you been cynical this entire time and I'm only figuring it out now? Oh, I'm the worst. (laughs) Let's bring in our guest. Celeste Cheney uh, is an American writer, emerging author, and marketer. Celeste is a Freedom Forum scholar and graduate of of the University of Utah. Her writing has been recognized by Writer's Digest and featured in Catalyst and the New York Times Magazine. Awesome. Wow. So, Celeste, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Oh, man, I'm really looking forward to this. So... Todd and I both read what we thought were advanced copies of In Absence of Fear because uh, we thought it was coming out in December. Turns out it had a much cooler uh, uh, publication date. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it did. Um, so it was uh, published November 5th. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Uh, v for Vendetta, of course. Sweet. Right. Um, that was totally by accident. Um, <laughs> I wish that I could say that was part of my grand plan. But um, no, Amazon chose to release it early and didn't tell me. So it was it was literally available uh, for sale for a week before I found out. That's hilarious. <laughs> Very cool, though. But at least it was November 5th. Yeah. So. No, that's, I think that's perfect. And this will be the last time that you'll ever tell the true story from now on. It's... <laughs> it's yeah, that was we, the plan. Yeah, 5th of November. And, and we are the place where we reveal the fact that there is secrecy behind the plan. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we'll talk a little bit about um, a little bit about the plot of the book, but I don't want to give it away. It's so new. This is not a review of a classic work like we often do on this uh, podcast. So we're not going to give too much away uh, as far as the plot. Uh, but I don't mind talking about a few things. Especially as much as we are dying to. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, we really are. We yeah. really are. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about, um, a, a, you know, broad view, what this uh, book is about. The, now, the book is readily compared to 1984, George Orwell's 1984, right? But after 50 pages or so, I was sitting there going, eh, this is more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, right? Uh, one of the central questions of Brave New World, and uh, this is just one of the ways that I think it's a more apt uh, comparison, is that we not only wrestle with the question of um, how the world got this way and what to do about it, you know, the whole Big Brother thing from 1984, uh, not just how the world got that way and what to do about it, but why is this wrong? Yeah. Why shouldn't the state help us live our lives more efficiently, more happily, right? And, And so that's what I got when I was about 50 pages in or so. I went, hang on, things sound pretty nice around here, you know, and... There's a little that, too nice. That libertarian part of me, of course, <laughs> is kicking against any idea of government intrusion and, and all that stuff. But uh, but ultimately, it's like, hey, kid goes and plays soccer. Every, you know, you have a job. Everybody's got money. You got a nice apartment. Sounds pretty sweet. So tell me a little bit about uh, your thought process with this. Um, how do you think about about stuff like that? I, it's a terrible question, but um, but when it comes to why is this wrong? Why shouldn't the state be be looking at this? Why is Maris's job not so great building this computer program? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because a lot of people, um, they read what the what the novel is about or they kind of get into it a little bit and they said, wow, this is this is really great. Like, I wish things were like this now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I could put a, a chip in my kid's wrist so that I always knew where he was. They and, must only be in the first 50 pages. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, so people are talking about that, they right? Are. This, is yeah, a, well, this, this is a thing that's happening. That's the thing. So this technology exists. I don't think I invented anything. Um, I think I took technology that exists today and I just kind of looked at where is it going to be in the next 10, 15, 25 years. Logical extreme. Yeah. And, um, and, 
for me, that was that was a little scary. Um, for other people, not so much. Um, I don't think the book is trying to say this is right or this is wrong. It's it's simply trying to open the conversation. The reason it's scary for me um, is because if you if if we allow convenience to kind of um, if if we allow to to cede to convenience and say, okay, well, you know, security and convenience are important to me. Um, I, I want to put a chip in my wrist because that makes sense. And because now I don't have to worry about losing my car keys and I don't have to worry about somebody stealing my identity or, or whatever it is. Um, you're, you're opening the door to what I call, you know, basically you're putting yourself in a glass box um, that society can never break out of. So you're saying the, the morals and the standards that we have today are fixed. We're never going to move beyond that. We're, we're totally okay with who we are and, and what we stand for today. So, so when I started writing this book, it, it, it evolved that it was about privacy and mass surveillance. And it's not that I set out to write this book. It just kind of happened, um, which, which sounds odd, but I think for a lot of writers, that's the case. You start with some characters, you start with um, a feeling, and you kind of take it to the next level. And the characters often take on um, a life of their own. Uh, so it wasn't supposed to be a book about privacy. That's what it turned out to be. Um, but once I discovered that, I thought, what do I believe? You know, I, I know that privacy is important, but I'm not a terrorist. I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear. You know, you've all heard that. Um, so why does it matter to me, other than the fact that I simply know I enjoy my privacy? Go Sorry. on. Oh, okay. I, I, have a, I have a question about that, oh, okay. but, but I want you to go um, on. So, so I started doing some research, um, and I started listening to, to talks, and um, I'm a huge fan of of TED.com. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband's name is also Ted, but that's a totally separate matter. Uh, so I was watching a TED Talk, and um, and I forget the name of the, of the gentleman who gave the talk, but it's called Why Privacy Matters. And he, he gave an example from the 1970s, the Czech Republic. And he said in the 1970s in the Czech Republic, it was illegal to be uh, homosexual. And political views aside, personal views aside, um, it, it's a great example because if you take you know, Czech Republic 1970s, and then you say, okay, it's a mass surveillance state, right? They would never move beyond that. They would, they would never, um, as a society, they would never get past those issues, right? In a, in a mass surveillance state. Um, so how so? What do you mean by that? So if, if the government is all seeing, all knowing, and that's their, that's their law, that's their rule, then um, they suddenly know everyone who, who is homosexual. They know everybody who's helping everybody who's homosexual. They're going to jail all of them. And then you can't really, there's no uprising. I mean, it's just because they know everything, because they can see everything, you can't really even organize against them. You just never really get the chance, or at least I think it would be extremely difficult to. Um, another example is if you think about um, innovation and social change, um, it always kind of happens on the cusp of society. It's always just beyond what's morally acceptable or socially acceptable. If you think about stem cell research, if you think about um, really any kind of in- you know, innovation or invention, um, scientists even, they won't even tell their colleagues sometimes what they're working on until they have a theory, until they have something that they can say, oh, well, this is what I'm working on, and this is why, and this is what I think so far. Um, but if you have a mass surveillance state, if suddenly there is no privacy, um, I think people would, they would self-censor. Uh, you know, I think um, 
if you one one um experiment that I did is I, I got a drop cam for my house and it's really kind of nerve-wracking to have that drop cam in my house because now suddenly I've noticed like my behavior has changed not that I'm like a crazy person by myself but you know like I'm not Don't, gonna do this certain is a, this things is a safe space here you can you can admit it you're a little nuts <laughs> dun, 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 dun. you know no more no more dancing around <laughs> like you know and singing to my dog and <laughs> the things that I used to do before I I don't do them because I think oh well you know maybe my husband is tuned in and now he's watching and that's kind of weird you know I don't want him to see that or maybe a hacker has tuned in you I've know? heard some crazy stories about uh, uh, baby cams yes where people will hang them in the crib and especially I heard one about uh, there was one with a speaker on it and the parents could like speak to their child through a microphone and try to soothe them if they woke up that sort of thing and some guy was listening at the door and he heard like some man's voice coming through the doorway and he opened it up and it was somebody had hacked in and was like yelling at the baby crazy <laughs> like i would lose my gourd if i if something like that happened well and people hack into um, computer cameras all the time right. um i have a little um it's a little sticky thing over my camera and it's yeah, a no, slider you, you brought that home from yeah <laughs> yeah i got one of those too yeah, yeah. it's awesome it, it is awesome one of the things that that really kind of piqued my interest as 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 i started into the book was um, the secrets that people try to keep from people that they love for for various reasons. Um, again, not to give an awful lot away, but um, in 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 writing the book, was that was that a major theme that you were thinking about as well about about the idea that we keep secrets from people to protect them? Um, or was that something that that evolved as your characters did, or it, was it just yeah. necessary in the story? Um, no, it evolved as the as the characters did, um, and and I think that it is. It is true to human nature, though. I mean, we we do want to protect the people we love, and sometimes we know that the way to do that is to omit certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that kind of um, that can become more painful and more dangerous, you know, the further that you let that go. Um, so that was one theme that I didn't intentionally uh, want to explore, but that became pretty prevalent uh, mm-hmm. throughout the novel, especially through um, Morris and Shay, his wife. Yeah. I, it's it's always been interesting to me. Um, recently, I've been I've been doing some uh, doing some seminars on on leadership and the importance of honesty and trust. Um, and it's always interesting that people will say, "Well, we have to be one hundred percent honest." And I and I will remind them of a story that uh, Gun McKay tells uh, about sitting at a table and, and when a gentleman said, "I am always one hundred percent honest," he turned and looked at him and said, "What do you tell your children about Santa Claus?" <laughs> um, and it's and and this idea that there are important truths that the timing for revealing them is very critical. Um, and it seems like in this book, um, you play with a lot of very important truths that the timing all goes off. <laughs> And it and it was was that a was that a plot device that you were thinking of was that or again was this something that just evolved organically as you moved through the novel? Um, it evolved organically in the beginning, and then I did start to see it as a plot device. Um, you know, especially later on with uh, Morris and Emery. Um, that was something that kind of that was fun. Was born. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that was something that was born really out of what was going on with Morris and his wife Shay. Um, and I thought, yeah, with the timing, because really timing is everything, and context is everything. And that's um, that's an, another thing that's interesting about the system and, and the state that Morris works for um, is you. There's this sense of a lack of context. So if you're looking at um, at data, right, like the the protector program. Yes. If you're looking at data. 
um, and you can see these behaviors and these actions, you can make predictions about what that means and you know, what Todd is really up to. I mean, he went here and that's sketchy. And then he was talking to Craig about this and that was sketchy. Um, but, but you uh, don't always, always, <laughs> always sketchy. But, We're aware. <laughs> but Everybody you who listens to this is aware. <laughs> right. But you don't always know like the context. Um, and so I kind of played with that with, um, with Shay and her sense of loss and the way that her, um, her profile had been flagged. Yeah. Um, because her behavior wasn't necessarily rational, but a person, everyone grieves differently. Yeah. Um, and so what might be, um, you know, this sense of, of, of withdrawal or this um, kind of, again, sketchy, for lack of a better term, um, behavior could be just one person's way of, of coping. Sure. Data is really good about showing us correlation. It's not real good about showing causation. Exactly. And it, it seems like that was one of the, uh, that was one of the pieces that was coming out very early in the, in the, in the work that Maris was trying to do as he, as he, as you, I think you use the term scrape the data and, mm-hmm. and looked at the different pieces saying, well, all of these things are there, but none of them mean this. Yeah. They're just data. And I found that really interesting that that here's a man who's in the midst of this whirlwind and he's not making some of the jumps that everybody else makes. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, you said this is that this book is not necessarily passing judgment on the situation. Like it's you say it's up to the reader to decide what what they prefer. Uh, yeah, I okay. mean, it's a... It, I want to make sure I get that right. <laughs> because if that's the case, then I, like you t- said, Todd, I must be very cynical. <laughs> because You are, but we're used to that. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, I mean, I certainly have my judgments, and so I'm sure that they come through in the novel. Um, but really, my intention um, was to, to encourage people to, to discuss these topics. I'm glad you admit that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I do too. I, there, there are a lot of authors who say, no, this is perfectly impartial. <laughs> <laughs> and then you laugh at them. Yeah. I don't think they mean it. I think they just <laughs> want to see if anyone is going to buy it. No, but okay. So the reason I, the reason I bring this up, I, cause I definitely see this as a dystopic novel. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, I have no problem saying that cause I love dystopic novels, but one of the strokes of brilliance with this book I hope you don't mind me gushing a little bit. Uh, I'm sure it's just awful for you to hear. Terrible. Um, but, Please um, keep going. With uh, with so many dystopic, dystopian? Dystopian. 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 I feel like this is the adjective though. Dystopic novels. Whatever. Uh, I feel like one of the problems with it is that uh, you, you you take um, Maze Runner or what's the Shailene Woodley thing? Uh, Divergent. 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 Um, you just get the sense that here's the state and it has imposed its will upon people and that's bad and so we must fight against it the reason i like this so much is because of something you brought up uh on page 215 uh yeah i've got it where i'll paraphrase i'll paraphrase it's it's not that uh it's not that we never thought something like this could happen it's that nobody expected everybody to embrace such mass surveillance and information gathering and uh, the all-seeing state with such open arms, right? And I, I feel like that's very, very much more real that, you know, to our situation where, you know, like we were talking about a few minutes ago with uh, implanting chips in your kids and all that stuff. We're sitting here going, oh my gosh, that would be so nice not to have to worry. I I found myself thinking as, 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 I, as I continued to read through the novel, I, I'm, I traveled a lot before 9-11, um, and I've traveled a lot since. 
and I've I've watched what has happened as we've moved in, moved toward a post 9/11 mentality about safety in travel and safety in in all of these kinds of situations and I and I keep hearing in the back of my head and I can't remember which of the which of the founders said it? I, I, I want to say it was Thomas Jefferson. It probably wasn't. It was probably Ben Franklin. The the the, the quote goes something along the lines of, um, "I know the one, Thomas Jefferson." Is it Thomas Jefferson? I'll a, bet. A, a, a nation that trades freedom for security deserves neither, or something. Uh, that that one might have been Ben Franklin. It's, I think it was Ben Franklin. <laughs> um, and, and I and I found myself thinking um, very clearly that this is. Um, this seems to be a very easy jump from where we are now, um, and and it and it bothered me, and it made me want to go immediately onto social media <laughs> <laughs> and say to people, "Stop, stop posting selfies," or, um, or read this book, right? Or read this book <laughs> because it 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 really it really struck a nerve for me. Um, not so much because of the not so much because of the oversight, but because of how easy so many people find that compromise. You yeah, know where and- where I place this book, I, I've brought up 1984 and Brave New World. I feel like there's this really nice, neat continuum where you have where we live now, and then you have the Brave New World of Aldous Huxley, um, and everybody's nice and pleasant, and then it moves into 1984 territory, and this is a really nice split between us. And Aldous Huxley. I'll buy that. Where you know we're we're traveling down that road, and, you know, and this is one of many roads that we could travel, right? And let's hope we don't. Yeah, um, you know, <clears throat> everyone asked, you know, when does this novel take place? And my editor really wanted me to ground it in a date, and I I was actually reluctant to. I kind of I left clues, so you said, yeah, you know, you could kind of <clears throat> they me, were, figure they were, that out, yeah. But um, sixteen years after nine eleven, yeah. But I didn't I didn't actually I was hesitant to do that because I actually I don't see it as a futuristic novel. Um, like I said before, all of this technology exists. It's just yeah. kind of that next applicable. Um, it is the, the next, next application for yeah. that technology. Um, so it is very terrifying. You know, you said easy earlier, Todd, and that's like the key word is it to me, it boils down to convenience. We are a society of convenience. And um, so the easier something is, I mean, we're going to we're going to hold on to it. And we're going to say, you know what? Yeah, I get that like they could be tracking me right now, but I really need my phone for this reason and I really need this app and I don't really care if they're going, you know, if they have access to my microphone and my camera and my whatever because the utility that I'm getting in return is worth what I'm risking. And that's why I always have my GPS turned off. You see, I I've, and I feel like I've seen <laughs> enough, <you> <laughs> I've seen enough episodes of 24 that I know <laughs> when and how to destroy my cell phone. I know all about burner phones. I'm good to go. I'm not going to say that I have a burner app on my phone. Oh wait. <laughs> so I want to I want to mention one more thing um, before before we go too far afield. And this this again is well, actually there are two things. One of them was um, I was I was very impressed. Oh, now I'm going to show my age. Uh-huh. Um, Todd's old. <laughs> I'm, I'm old. I'm he old. has to pull the glasses off. Yeah, well, the next time I get glasses, they're probably going to have bifocals, which will be even more humiliating. <laughs> You're old. Um, but it was it, it, it was a wonderful um, it was a wonderful uh, passage, and it was on page 137. Uh, the answer is as simple as a question: How do you achieve total power and preserve democracy? The hat waited, and Maris didn't answer. You give the you give the people a reason to give up their rights. Very. Um, that was that was the moment where this turned from a fun read 
to, for me, a real page turner because I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I got to see where this (laughs) one's going. Um, So I really really enjoyed, not that I didn't enjoy it up until that point. I I was, but I- But there's always a moment. There's a moment where it, where I went, okay- Okay. I'm in. <laughs> I'm 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 done with my lunch hours. I stayed up late at night. My wife looked at me and said, "Are you coming to bed?" I said, five more pages. Five more pages." <laughs> um, so that was really cool. And I and I just wanted to mention, I th- I thought that section um, was was beautifully put together. Um, this nicely is, written. Yeah. This is weird, Todd. We're used to talking about authors behind their back. <laughs> well, I can leave the room if we'll, that would be easier. <laughs> we'll do that another time. We'll do that another time. We'll we'll do that on the greatest hits of. Um, which maybe I think we have to be ten years before we can do a greatest hits. We'll, so here's we'll work on that. here's a question for the both of you. Uh, in a mass surveillance state, what's the most terrifying thing? Like what what little specific thing makes you go, no, uh, uh-uh, I'm out. Bedroom. Be- well, okay. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Bedroom because because nobody wants to see Todd naked. That's not what I was going for. That's what um, I was going for. The the for for me. I'll talk about all kinds of things around the kitchen table. We'll talk about all kinds of things uh, as we're walking around the house. We'll, we'll do all kinds of things. We'll have all kinds of conversations. But when I'm, in, when I'm in the bedroom with my wife, that's where I grapple with big questions. And I ask her and we, we, we push each other's belief systems and understanding of, of where we're at. And so for me... The idea that my bedroom could be not even videoed, but bugged by the state for my own good. Okay, first off, if anybody tells me that listening to listening to me to protect me is for my own good, okay, now them's fighting words. We got a problem, <laughs> but that it would be in my bedroom. Uh-uh, no way. I don't want it ever. Can I tell you mine? Yeah. Real-time lie detection. There's a scene when he and oh, Detective yeah, Bala are yeah. sitting at the kitchen table and he's like checking his tablet. It says he might be checking this LifeWatch stuff where they're they're looking at biometric data. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. They could tell when I'm lying in real time. I'm a big liar. So I guess I don't I lie all the time. <laughs> I guess that doesn't bother me because I watch Lie to Me and I've started to figure out your micro expressions. But that's a different story. God, I, uh, I really am so grateful that you're on this podcast right now. You're my favorite. <laughs> Anyway. That's okay. Avoiding eye contact isn't necessarily an indication of a lie. <laughs> uh, what about you, Celeste? Uh, for me, I think, again, it goes back to context. Um, as I was researching for this novel, I, I couldn't help think, like, they're probably watching me right now um, because of my search queries. I mean, literally the things that I had to research just to make it sound realistic. And, you know, I'm not really a tech a techie person. Um, so I had to I had to research a lot of the technology and by way of my queries, I thought, okay, I'm definitely on a government watch list right now. And and they think I'm a terrorist. It's kind of like when I was at work and I had to research gay bars in Salt Lake City. And so I'm like, Every, I'm coming out, everybody. Well, and then you get like, you know, the retargeting too. So then oh, yeah, you're you seeing the display ads and everybody's like, Ugh. yeah. Um, That's okay. Appearing on this podcast makes you a controversial figure. So it, we didn't help you at all. And I live 15 minutes from the NSA's largest data center. So. Oh, yeah. Okay, now so that's another thing that came up to me as as we were as I was reading through this. I looked at my wife and I said, "This is yesterday. This isn't happening tomorrow. This is yesterday." Exactly. 
Um, you know, I didn't even know they were building that center when I was when I was writing this. I was well into the novel by the time I found out. Um, and and actually, that that's true of what happened with Edward Snowden and the yes. NSA. So I I started writing this novel eight years ago. It's kind of it pains me to admit that. Um, but and I didn't get very far with it. Uh, you know, like fifty pages, and I just never really um, gave it the attention that it deserved uh, until until Edward Snowden revealed classified NSA documents. And then I thought, oh, my God, like a lot of the stuff that I thought I was fictionalizing is actually happening. Yeah. Um, so I actually I quit my job and um, I started writing full time. I thought you were going to say I quit writing the book. <laughs> ah, somebody already did it. Somebody beat me to I'm it. I'm out. That's actually a, that's a recurring. I don't know for other writers, but I, I've had that nightmare where I <laughs> I dreamt that somebody else wrote my book with my exact characters names. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, I get so upset about that. But anyway, um, I relate. I so. Relate. Yeah, it took me um, took me two years uh, to finish the novel, and then I, I submitted it to to an editor out of Berkeley, and and he was the one who. I mean, I obviously knew that there was some pe- people were going to kind of get 1984 out of it, but he said that you know it was an important work and um, you know deserving of the comparison with or- or- Orwell, excuse me, and uh, that he wanted to take me on, and that's when I started to to get really excited. I'm like, oh my, god, okay, this is like yeah, that's awesome. This is a big deal. Yeah. Tell, um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the publishing process now. Yeah, and and I ask this for anybody who may be listening who says, you know, I'd like to write a book too. Uh, you say you've been working on this for years now, uh, and, and but it's only been in the last couple of years that it's really accelerated and been a, a full time process for you. Yeah, exactly. So it's funny. I actually workshopped some of the early pages in a creative writing class at, when I was at at the University of Utah. <laughs> um, so I still have the first draft, which is so embarrassing to read. Um, but I only got to about fifty pages and then. Um, really set it aside until about two years ago. And, and you know, two years ago, I started from scratch. I, I had the same idea, the same characters, um, but completely started over. Um, did that for about a year of intensive writing and then um, sought an editor's perspective, worked with him to really make it a little more succinct and, and tighten things up. And that was a couple months long process and, uh, and then did a lot more rewriting and, and refining. And here we are. What would you say to somebody who is who has maybe a few chapters or a whole manuscript and they're afraid to submit it to the editor. <laughs> you have to just do it. You have to do it. There's a funny story about that because I actually didn't think, um, his name's Alan Rinsler and he, uh, he's been in the industry for 50 years and he actually discovered Toni Morrison. So he worked with her on the bluest eye and, nice. and he also, um, he worked for Bantam books and, and worked with, uh, uh, Bob Dylan and John Lennon and Hunter S. Thompson. So like really cool people. Celeste Cheney. I mean, <laughs> No one of these days we're going to say this. Yes. A storied career indeed. <laughs> but, uh, Crown jewel of his life was the last <laughs> author he found, Celeste Cheney. What, before he died? Or before he a... decided to retire. Oh, okay. Why are island. you English? Stop doing that. <laughs> no, he, he is. Um, he has a granddaughter who's <laughs> older than I am. So he's, I think oh, he's wow. in his 80s. Wow. Um, I just show, I'll show you guys a picture. He has incredible white, like a white fro. It's awesome. <laughs> um <laughs> But anyway, oh man, I totally lost my train of thought. Yeah, there. Well, we we tend to do that. <laughs> what would you here. What would you tell him? What would you tell someone? Just do it. Oh yeah, just do it. So I didn't think he was going to respond to me, and and so that really like took me aback. So he emailed me back. He said he would read the whole thing, wouldn't charge me, which is a big deal, I guess, because yeah. a lot Huge. of times editors charge reading fees. Um, so he read the whole thing, and then he said, "Oh yeah." So when he said that you know, send me the, the, the whole manuscript. Like no one had seen it. It was like 90,000 words at that point. I think the finished book is 81,000, just over 81,000. So it was like this huge, like sloppy, terrible manuscript. And he said, send it to me. And I, I knew I, 
I couldn't delay because, you know, he's going to lose interest and right. you kind of need to respond within 24 hours. So he had emailed me at, um, I think it was like 7 a.m. I worked from 7 a.m. until 2 a.m. the next morning, literally nonstop, just tightening it up the best that I could. And then finally I just said, okay, you know, screw, screw it. it. There's, <laughs> there's, I can't make any more improvements. Yeah. And I sent it. Um, and, you know, I ended up rewriting a lot of it. So I think, you know, all the writers out there, just, you have it, just send it. Um, you're going to do a lot of rewriting anyway. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a really good thing, actually. Can I mention one more thing really quickly? Um, and, and to take us from a, uh, on a totally different direction, there are a lot of themes that, that show up through the book. And I'm, uh, I, th- I think we've talked about the privacy and we've talked about the, uh, the, the, the watch, the, the idea of the dystopian state. But one of the things that I really liked was that you avoided some real... Um, easy uh, family attacks, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, I found myself in the beginning of the book saying to myself, oh, no, I hope this doesn't happen. Oh, no, I hope this doesn't happen. And it never did. Um, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm curious. Um, the, there, there, there were opportunities that I know that, other, that I've seen other authors take um, to have uh, the illicit affairs, um, to throw those things in, to complicate things even further, to and and to have allowed to salacious um, it up, to to have allowed Maris to give in to Ange, to have allowed Maris to uh, find something different in in Roz, um, mentioning some characters, and people will go and read the book, and they'll they'll be looking for that. Um, and I was and I was very pleased that as you worked with that um, personally, from a from a personal standpoint, um, that you. You avoided those. You you took a you took you allowed your characters to take a higher ground at a time when uh, it would have probably been easy to let it just be very different. Yeah, and and that goes back to Morris's character. I mean, he's a man of principle, and I I, I don't know if that's clear. Hopefully, hopefully it is. But I it's think he, clear. you know, he he operates in a very like like black and white. I mean, like ones and zeros, I think I said at the beginning of the novel. I mean, he is so analytical and there there is no gray area. And that's why it's so difficult for him to overcome what's happened to his son and to grapple with um, feelings of failure, both as a father. Um, and then, you know, like kind of, as you mentioned, I mean, even with Ange, I mean, he felt like a, a failure um, as a husband too, um, you know, for even not entertaining, but for I don't want to give too much away, but, but for, uh, a, for a moment, yeah, for submitting to her flirtations, right? Uh, for a moment. Um, and, you know, obviously Shay leaves. And so he feels a failure um, as a husband and, and he feels uh, like a failure as a protector, as, as a man who is responsible for the program that was supposed to protect his son and other people like his child. Um, so it, it really is about him trying to make sense of that and to find himself um, through all of that. Uh, I have like a million other things that I could talk about, but uh, we're wrapping up. So we are going to, uh, Todd, can we keep you for five more minutes? You got me for five more minutes. Okay, cool. I I don't want to have to kick Todd out. So, Um, uh, I don't want to (laughs) leave. Well, thank you. Lightning round question. Um, Naming characters. I, I've always thought that this so is hard. so difficult to do, not not being a novel writer myself, but I've always thought this is so difficult and so few authors can do it. And it's, you know, it's an art form, really. Um, but you you have some fine names in there. Reagan, <laughs> Rand, 
Are these on accident? Reagan, and then what was the last one? Rand. Rand. Oh, uh, Rand Harford. Are, th- um, are these on accident, or are we playing up the kind of conservative libertarian <laughs> angle here? I want to know if Devlin comes from the that? Devlin, Max Devlin. I was... No, it doesn't. Um, you know, I, I should say that, that it does. Um, but no, it was uh, by was accident. accident. It was I'm by just, accident. So this is a taste of what you'll get. People will read way too much into your novel. You know what's... Um, well, you know who Rand Fishkin is. Uh, I do not. Oh, you do not? Okay. Uh, Moz. So uh, as a oh, yeah, fellow yeah, yeah. marketer. And I, I just thought that was an interesting... Okay. I like Rand. All right. Um, but... But yeah, I, I knew a Reagan. Um, everyone is always perplexed by Morris because it's like, no, you know, nobody, <clears throat> excuse me, has heard that name. Um, it just, he's been Morris since the beginning. I mean, literally eight years ago when I wrote the first scene, he was Morris and I have no idea why. Um, and he's actually the only character whose name I didn't even attempt to change. Hmm. So um, Shay had a different spelling. Um Cade's name was different in the beginning. Uh, so these are things that I probably shouldn't admit to. Uh, but, you know, you I think you have to, it has to sound right. And um, there's a lot of importance that a that name, you know, plays yeah. in a novel. Um, and I didn't take that lightly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, we really ought to wrap up. So one more, one okay. more. One more, Todd. Oh, my gosh. Okay. You're so, killing me. I know, I know, I know, I know I am. Um, the, uh, the, the scene with the gypsy. <laughs> oh, dude, that was a great scene. That's actually one of my personal favorites. <laughs> that was so utterly creepy. I really Just, loved let's, it. Let's leave it there so that we don't give away too much of the plot. There's a scene okay. with the gypsy. It's creepy. Yeah, watch for the gypsy. Um, all right, so I'm very just, afraid. <laughs> I will leave everybody with uh, just the final thought. Would be definitely read it. Um, I had a great time with it. I read a lot of books new books by local authors and stuff and oftentimes they're good not great uh but i really enjoyed this one had a great time with it it's a it it would be a great airplane book if it weren't more important than that does that make sense it's a i felt like it was a pretty quick read i i wasn't getting bogged down by it uh i it was a page turner once you get to that certain point yeah uh but it's more important than the airplane book if that makes more sense so you're saying the books that people read on airplanes are useless (laughs) drivel that's exactly what he's saying it's yeah that sounds like exactly what he said doesn't it (laughs) i hate you todd all right (laughs) the day is complete (laughs) all right let's go we will sign off thank you again everybody for listening um we will be airing our uh, Shannara series soon. Uh, we're reading the Shannara trilogy in preparation for the new MTV. Oh my gosh, MTV series. But anyway, uh, listen for that. Make sure you follow us on Facebook. Uh, head to thelegendariumpodcast.com. Leave us a note. And please, for heaven's sake, uh, go on iTunes. Give us a one-star rating and tell us why we're so terrible. Um, or whatever. Anyway, thanks for Especially listening, Especially if you're from Sweden. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. The Legendarium Podcast is sponsored by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. Follow along with our current series or enjoy some of the classics by visiting thelegendariumpodcast.com, where you can sign up for your free trial membership. Click the sponsor link on our website for a free audiobook.